I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel or open your apps. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. We're going to be reading 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 20. There was a certain man from Ramathia, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah and the other Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Panina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. All right, thanks, Waldine. I'm actually very impressed with how well you read that. 
Wow, you impressed me for a lot of reasons, but that was very good. Thank you so much. Um, well, uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. Uh, if you came in late and missed my little ditty earlier, uh, but uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. Glad you guys are here. If you're visiting for the dedication, again, welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are, as you just heard, uh, we are starting a series in the books of First and Second Samuel that will take us through the school year. Uh, last week, we actually began it uh, with kind of an introductory sermon, uh, talking over some introductory matters on the book, including uh, how to sit under preaching on Old Testament narrative like this, and, and one of our main interpretational goals being to read it how the New Testament reads it. Uh, I think I mentioned Jesus quotes it more than once, and so kind of following his lead, uh, which is to say, as though the book looks ahead to and foreshadows Jesus in its many and various stories, characters, plot twists, and prophecies. Um, I don't think I said this last week, um, but the Bible is a unique book in that although we might read it front to back, we need to interpret it back to front because that's how it interprets itself. Um, and there are a lot of other things we talked about <clears throat> Excuse me, last week as well, too. I can't recap all of it. Go back and listen if you would like on our website or SoundCloud account. Um, but uh, that was last week's goal. Today, though, we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 1, and look at the first 20 verses. This first story uh, about Hannah, especially, who's uh, the principal main character in this story, but also her husband, Elkanah, and her rival, uh, Penina. So we'll talk about um, Eli, too, but he's kind of in the background. He'll come up a little bit more in future chapters. Uh, a quick aside on polygamy, in case you were wondering a bit about that. Uh, as you just heard, First Samuel 1 starts out on a polygamous note. It says, Elkanah had two wives. Um, but remember from last week, and then I'll just say it again here too, like, remember that just because something's mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean it's condoned or endorsed or even good or lasting. This is a trap many people fall into interpretationally, usually if you think the Bible is primarily a rule book, because you might read something like this and say, well, the Bible says it, and it doesn't outright um, say it's bad, so therefore it must be good. It's just this thing that's kind of pronounced over uh, us as humanity or people of God, like we should you know, um, see truth in it or see good in it somehow or maybe even copy it. Um, but polygamy is not good. It's not God's original design, and it's clearly leading to all kinds of sin and dysfunction and favoritism and sadness here in 1 Samuel 1, things that God is against. But, but with that said, God doesn't shy away from it either. He, he's using it here to tell a story, and he's drawing near to those who engage in polygamy. He even answers the prayers of polygamists. And so I, I like that about the Bible, how it sometimes is category-busting for us, and if uh, if polygamy is not the worst thing, and it isn't the worst thing in the world, even though it's awful, uh, there might be something else you might put in here in the blank of this, like, um, you know, a place, insert your, your favorite sin, as, that's weird to say, but insert your, like, your worst thing you can think of, uh, and think, you know, God answers prayers of those kinds of people because we are those kinds of people. Um, this is a story of the Bible. God is saving sinners in spite of themselves apart from their works and goodness. That's the gospel. God saves people in spite of themselves, not because of themselves, apart from their works and goodness. So the gospel is not purify yourselves from all sexual sin and perversions, and then God will look towards you and save you. Uh, it's that he's at work before uh, that, even before we repent and believe. He's at work drawing near to people who are very wayward, even people uh, like Elkanah, even people like Hannah, even people like Penina, and even people like us. 
All right, so that's about all I'm gonna say by way of introduction. There's a ton more I could, uh, but again, if you want more on that and things like that, I'd point you back to last week's uh, sermon. So, today, rival wives, 1 Samuel 1, 1 uh, to 20. So, what I wanna do is break this down into basically two sections. One, what do we learn from Hannah? And then two, what do we learn from Elkanah, uh, the husband? All right, so we'll address more characters than that, but that's kind of basically the two uh, principal things here going on in the first part of this book. So Hannah's story uh, is, um, I don't know what your guys' background is with uh, this book. Uh, it's, I think, one of the more well-known stories, though, in first and second, in, including 2 Samuel, which is saying a lot, because 2 Samuel encompasses so much about David's life, who is uh, such a big deal in the Bible. Um, and I think it's, you know, she, her story is so well-known because it's just so relatable. Uh, whether we're struggling with infertility or feeling like an outcast or an afterthought in our lives, or we have some kind of rival in our life who's always doing better than us at everything and maybe letting us know about it, um, whether we're experiencing unanswered prayer, or maybe have some kind of marital struggle going on. There's, there's something here for pretty much everybody, at least at some point in our life. Uh, but notice in the story, there's no easy answers given to any of those problems. The only thing that's explicitly resolved is her infertility uh, or her barrenness, but it's bumpy along the way, to put it mildly. Uh, you, you could say Hannah's spirituality is problematic in a lot of ways, and we'll get to that. But let's just walk through a couple things with Hannah here, things that we learn from her about her, things that are theological in nature, things that tell us about God and what the gospel is, what the main story of Scripture uh, has to say. Because if you don't know this about the Bible, there's one main story and a lot of smaller stories that help to tell that one main story. That's basically the whole Bible. Like, and, it, and I hope that's a help for you in your interpretational endeavors, uh, not just today as you listen to a sermon, but as you read the rest of your life. Um, the Bible is primarily about Jesus. And these smaller stories somehow help to tell his story. That's why they exist. They're not just standalones or one-offs, um, but they're um, microcosms of, of the greater narrative. All right, so uh, the first thing I want to talk about, so two big things. The first one, um, a little bit quicker, is, um, and this came up last week in Ruth 4 as well, which is why I want to talk about it. So you see how there, there's kind of a bridge here between these stories. God has this strange but beautiful pattern of drawing near to barren women in the Bible. And again, if you've read the Old Testament, um, remember this. Isn't this cool? Or maybe you do and didn't even need me to say that. Uh, but maybe you haven't read this. And you, you should know this. That God has this persistent, almost stubborn, uh, in a good way, stubborn, persistent pattern of drawing near, insisting to draw near to women who are distraught over their, their barrenness. Uh, it's a theme that starts way back in the book of Genesis. So think of Sarah and Rebecca and Leah. Then go ahead to Samson's mom, Manoah. She's barren as well. And then it doesn't lose any steam here right in 1 Samuel 1 with Hannah. Um, you could argue in this book, it's the first thing we learn actually about God is that he sees us in our distress and pain, hears our cries, and draws near to us. If there's a broader idea here that goes beyond barrenness and beyond women to include men as well who are distraught, that's the broader idea. God sees us in this place, and, and he draws near to us. Um, Hannah, you probably saw this in the reading, uh, it, it, the chapter is not shy about highlighting how awful life is for her. It's really, really bad, like really bad. 
and she's weeping, she's distraught. Year after year, she's provoked and incited and teased and mocked. She has no kids. I mean, it's just really, really bad uh, for her, especially in that time and culture. Um, and so, but that's the point here, if there is kind of a broad umbrella to this, and we'll get specific to specifics here as we go, but um, is that God draws near. And, and if or when the barrenness is overcome, it remi- and it is often in these stories, it reminds us that God is a God whose grace brings fullness to the empty and life to the dead. Uh, whether we're married or parents or pregnant or none of those things, it doesn't matter. The broader idea here is that we're all spiritually barren. And as the story goes on, that becomes more clear. The prophets pick up on this theme and talk about Jesus in uh, barrenness terms. Mary is not just barren, she's a virgin. God overcomes that as well. So all this moves forward in the story to show that God is going to fill empty things and bring life to the dead, not just to wombs, but calling corpses out of tombs uh, as well, which is his main MO in history and scripture. Now, to help accentuate this idea, uh, and this is moving into the second thing, 1 Samuel 1 is not just a story about Hannah, all right? So if it, just, if it was just her, this is about all the farther we'd get. And it's still getting very far theologically, but this is about all we would say. That's not really what 1 Samuel 1 is ultimately about. 1 Samuel 1 is a story about Hannah and Elkanah's other wife, Penina, who is her rival, who provokes her and irritates her, it says, until she starts to weep. I mean, this is a very, very bad person. It doesn't really need to say that, but it, it needs to be highlighted, I think. Uh, she is an awful individual, uh, and Hannah is, is bearing the brunt of her arrogance uh, and her inciting of her and her provoking. Um, and it's not really hard to guess what the nature of the provoking was, is it? I mean, maybe it is for some. That's okay. Uh, but if you think about it uh, in, in context, it's not, you don't have to have much of an imagination to know what the nature of the provoking was. Uh, Panina was saying, I have kids and you don't. Boom. You know? It was like, it's just constant moments of um, look at me and look at you. Um, she, she was saying, um, you'll never have kids like I do. She, she was saying, I'm clearly the preferred wife. She was saying, if you were as favored as I was, then God would bless you with children. She was likely saying, you must have done something wrong to deserve this. And so on, and so on, and so on. And it's helpful to remember in this culture, more than ours, that it was seen as a wife's duty. Her main job was to bear children and and to keep a home. And so Penina is basically saying, I've done more than you. I've worked more. I I have the fruit of my labors. I I can show it. I can put it like trophies on my mantle. And you have nothing, nothing. Look at how much better I am than you. And, And that helps us to see, when we think about it in those terms, as is always the case when these types of pairings come up in the Bible, that they represent two covenants, two testaments or ways of relating to God. When you see in Galatians 4, the statement in the New Testament, when Paul interprets the Old Testament, and he says, Abraham had two sons through two women or wives, and they represent two covenants allegorically. Then when you see here in 1 Samuel 1, Elkanah had two wives, 
this is a signpost. This is a, a signal, a biblical theological flag of sorts, that the same theology is present here. Uh, Penina, with her seemingly natural and self-made fertility, represents the old covenant of do this and then you will have life, then you will live. Keep the commandments and then you will have life in a relationship with God. That way of thinking. It was a way that provoked and incites like the law did to Israel in the Old Testament and in many ways to us as well. Uh, A way that exposes us for lack of fruit or performance. But Hannah represents the new covenant, the covenant of belief alone. Uh, She is the wife in this story of weakness and the wife of less work, the wife of more dependence. And with her, it's actually more clear that God is needed for everything and uh, more than with Penina because of their strong contrast between their prayer lives in this story. With Hannah, the whole thing is about her praying. With Penina, there's no, there's no sense to which she's relying on God or praying. Um, that's a big part of this as well. So Jesus then, kind of, and I talked about genealogies last week, Jesus comes from Hannah's theological lineage. He comes from the line of God opening wombs and bringing life single-handedly, not with any kind of assistance. Think of um, Rachel and Leah in the book of Genesis, if you've read this before, and then the Hagar-Sarah kind of sister-wife thing too. There's, there's these rival sister-wife things elsewhere in the Bible too, and it's the same story. Jesus comes from one of those lines. There's always these dualities and twos, and Jesus only comes from one of them, not from the other. And it's no mistake that Jesus comes from the barren side, from the side where God had to work alone to bring life, unassisted by us. So from the line of Sarah and Leah, and now from the line of of Hannah. Um, Not from the line of external beauty and effort and natural fertility. And so this is why I think, too, that... um, Samuel's name here means because I asked the Lord for him and not because I worked for him. This is why these stories exist, these dualities in the Bible. It's telling a story. This is why it says the Lord closed Hannah's womb because for a time, because he was, he was intending to tell this story and to amplify his work and lower ours. And so these stories exist, these dualities um, to show us how we tend to think about God and spirituality and salvation, that Jesus is good but not ultimate. Uh, In Acts 15, in the New Testament, even after Jesus rises from the dead and the church is born, there are these Christians that said, Jesus is good, but you also need to keep the law of Moses. You need to keep the Ten Commandments. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow all these rules. And there was this first Jewish council that came out of it and said, absolutely not. That's not what you have to do. Jesus is enough. And they sent a letter to these non-Jewish Christians who were burdened by that rule-keeping message to say, you're okay with Jesus alone. The book of Galatians was written out of this as well. Uh, if you um, haven't read that before, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a fun read. It sounds like I'm talking about a magazine when I say that. But uh, it, it is. A, it's a um, helpful counterpart to Acts 15 narratively. So to juxtapose, so it, it's to show us how we tend to have this wanting to add to Jesus' mentality and to think that, that um, the good things in life come after we work for them. 
But the gospel flips that. It says the good things in life come when God works for us. And so to have this juxtaposition or this contrast amplifies or shows the better way of God's grace so that no one can boast. Um, You think about all this story happens and then Hannah has her kid. If she's really like living by faith and thinking about it, she wouldn't be a bragger like Penina. Penina bragged because she thought she produced the kid. It was on her. What she did, you know, did something and, and brought life into the world and identified her, made her matter. But with Hannah, um, it was li- very likely, and we'll see this next week too, is, but very likely different. Like she was humbled through this, realizing I was just given to, which is the reality for all of us as Christians. We're given salvation. We don't earn it. All right, here's what's interesting though, to acknowledge all of that uh, and then to, to kind of move through the story. Hannah though she represents the new covenant in her barrenness and posture of dependence and faith, um, her spirituality actually has more of a conditionalized, if then, old covenant look to it at times. Um, It says here in verse uh, 11 um, that she made a vow to God, saying, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you guys. You don't have to raise your hand. Uh, in your mind, you'll think about this. Like, is this a way that you've prayed before? I know I, I used to. Uh, I've had this, I remember actually once when I was in college thinking about this thorn I had in my side, and I, and I literally shaped my prayers this way. God, if you just take this away, then I'll do this for you. And, of course, I never did because I'm not a promise keeper, um, and, so, and I'm sinful. So, uh, but this is what she says. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you, which... She actually does end up doing. She weans the child, and then this is what the Bible calls a Nazarite vow, the whole razor thing with the hair. She kind of gives the, the child over to temple service and, um, and as, he, as he's weaned. So, but the, the key here is she barters with God. And she abstains from alcohol for an undisclosed amount of time as well, thinking that will turn the head of God toward her. Uh, So remember when I said uh, Old Testament narrative often isn't prescribing a certain way of living? This is a great example. Lest we think that if we just take the Hannah approach to making a deal with God and showing our devotion to him through fasting and other forms of self-denial, then all our problems will go away. God will allow us to be, to have children or to not have cancer anymore or to not be as anxious or whatever it is. Uh, If we just do something for him, then he will do something for us. And so we have to like step back and see this in relation to the greater story here and how it's that, this way of thinking is actually replaced with a better way. And for that, we turn to Elkanah, the husband. All right, so Elkanah is an interesting guy. He is a polygamist, so there's that. Uh, in fact, this is the, uh, there's not a lot of ancient art on Elkanah. This is like one of the few. It's from a, uh, an illustrated Bible from, I believe, the 10 hundreds. Uh, uh, it goes way back. Um, but it's kind of funny because he has two cloaks, one for each of his wives. It's sort of like, I think this one's yours. And this one's yours. He was probably wrong. You know, so he just, sound, he just looks like a man uh, who's confused and like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have married two women. Yeah, you probably shouldn't have. Um, but so he's a polygamist and he shows favoritism towards Hannah, which is probably not good. 
but you could also see that as further support for monogamy, actually, um, in his favoritism uh, and uh, of Hannah. But he also becomes a hero uh, in this story. Interestingly, more than Eli, the priest, who you think would, be, would take the mantle and serve as a savior figure. The priests were supposed to be representative of God in Old Testament times in different ways. But instead, Eli's kind of aloof and passive. Like, why are you drunk? And Hannah's like, no, I'm just, ta- I'm just mouthing words silently. I would, I would never be drinking right now. And they kind of go back and forth, and it's kind of weird. Uh, but instead, he's passive. And, and all along... Waiting in the wings, we have this quiet husband whose love for Hannah serves as the bright spot. All right, so and this is the two things, this is why this matters theologically then for us. Again, as we read this into uh, the, the greater story. Um, if we're interested in cause and effect here, and interested in understanding what led to Hannah's ability to conceive we shouldn't draw a line back to Hannah's asceticism or vow-making, but to Elkanah's physical intimacy with her. Uh, it says here, um, Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to his son, which is Samuel. And then further back to Hannah, he gave a double portion of the, the um, meat of the sacrifice because he loved her. All right, so... It's his love for her that precedes the life in her womb and that accompanies God opening the womb, not Hannah's works. And, and after she eats and drinks too, which is interesting, it's not during her fast that God opens the womb. It's after she starts to eat. Uh, maybe you notice that. Hannah's like, no, I can't drink. Uh, and even Eli is like, you know, you probably shouldn't. I can't believe you're, you're drinking wine. And she's like, I would never. But Elkanah's like, eat more. Have a second hamburger, you know. Uh, it's like, and he keeps like shoving food uh, towards her. It's a, it's, we're meant to see that juxtaposition, right? She's saying I shouldn't. I should deny myself and harm myself and fast and not eat. Elkanah's like, eat, all right? Um, in other words, plentiful provision Love and marriage leads to life and, and, and her figurative salvation here, uh, just like it does for us, because Elkanah is a lot like Jesus here. Jesus is our true spiritual bridegroom, offering us the food and body of his body and blood. It's his love for us that precedes life in our souls, not our asceticism, our promise-making to God, our vow-making to God, or our, our good works. That's what this means. And so see, from here we have all kinds of interesting gospel angles to take. Um, the double portion of the sacrifice that Elkanah gives to Hannah points to the double portion of the sacrifice of Jesus' body given to us, his bride. Uh, which is to say, Jesus doesn't give us a single portion which is to say, not just enough grace, barely enough, but more than we need. Uh, I think I've said up here before that God's grace is like five guys' fries, if you ever get into five guys. It's like too much. With God's grace, he gives too much to you. Not just enough, too much. There's too much of God's grace in your life. Isn't that freeing? You can never outspend it, never use it up, never sin enough to match it. It's not given just in response to past sins. 
to match them perfectly, but then your sanctification, your future is up to you to to, uh, live in a way that proves you're saved. Instead, you're given a double portion to match your future sins. And so we don't move on from grace because it never runs out. Um, I I think of uh, Ephesians 1 where it says God lavished his grace on us. You know what lavished means? It means extravagant quantities. That's a great biblical theological word to remember. That with grace, it's too much. It's extravagant. Uh, There's another phrase in Isaiah that says, God will abundantly pardon you uh, from your sins. Which is like, and on a human level, we can't do that. You can't abundantly pardon someone. You either pardon them from a crime or you don't, right? There's no way to abundantly pardon. But with God, he's actually able to do that. He's, he does more than what's necessary. He abundantly pardons us from all of our sins because Jesus died for us. Uh, he pours in the five guys' fries. He lavishes grace. He gives a double portion, not a single one. So we see his love in that. And so we rest in it knowing it'll never, ever, ever run out. And honestly, I don't think we've ever finished our five guys' fries. So the, the metaphor works. Uh, so, all right. And what I love about most, most about this, though, actually, is uh, that after Hannah admits that she wants, she passively admits that she wants children more than him. That was what verse 8 was kind of getting at. When, when he's like, why are you crying? Am I not enough for you? Remember that part? Why, am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And I think the implication is she's like, I don't know if you are. I don't know if you are. I want kids, and, 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 I, and I weep until I get them. Um, what I like about this guy, you know, in this story is that even after she admits that, Elkanah stays committed to her. And you've got to, like, check the polygamy at the door for a second in your mind. And remember, he preferences her. And in spite of his awful life decisions, he's still showing commitment amidst her wayward heart. See, the theology in this is, in the same way, Jesus stays committed to us, even after we want other things in life in our hearts more than him. And all of you have done that. I've done it. I'm not throwing shade here. It's just the honest truth. As, I don't care how mature you are, we've all wanted things more than him. Or we've said, I love you, Jesus, but until I get this, life's not good. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, I need it to be enough. I need it to be happy. I need it to compare myself to my friends and my peers. I need to climb this mountain. I need to pass this thing. Uh, we've all done it. And more than we realize... And so that the beauty in this, if Elkanah is a Christ figure, and he is, then he's a picture of how much more Jesus is committed to us um, when we don't put him first. So do you see how insane, just insane, this love is? Even when your heart's affections aren't rightly aligned, he isn't waiting for you to put him first and then weighing his love against how well you do that. He's putting you first by dying on a cross among criminals for you. And he would do it if you're the only person on earth and he would do it a bazillion times. That's what the Christian God is like. In John 20, 
Jesus asks Mary the same question that Elkanah asks Hannah. He says, woman, why are you weeping? This is after the day of his resurrection, and she doesn't recognize him at first. It says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried his body away, tell me where you have laid him, and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And what you see in John 20 is that Jesus gives himself in the face of her weeping and her disbelief and her doubts and her fears and her sin, Jesus gives himself in full-blown eternal commitment, saying, my death and resurrection are what matter. The fact that I'm alive is enough. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always fight your battles. I'll always be, I'll never divorce you, no matter what. And so, what we need then in, in narratives like this is we need something more than just be sure you put Jesus first and love him more than blank. Because see, without seeing Jesus in this story, that's as far as you can go. There's nowhere else you can really go. That's the extent of it. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, Jesus should be first. Uh, even not too long ago, I was counseling a pre-married couple about, you know, your spouse, your future spouse will make a terrible savior. Uh, you must put Jesus before your spouse. I mean, and, and anything else in life. He's worthy of it. Um, he's the only one that can bear the burden of being the main thing of, of our life. And so there's, it's not, that's not a bad thing. But we need a better word than that. And the, the scriptures in this story have a better word. And the better word is, when you fail to put him first, he still stays committed to you because he loves you without condition. And as the perfect husband put you first when he bled for your sins. That's the gospel. Elkanah is a whisper, an imperfect glimpse, but Jesus is the bright, shining sun, the perfect trumpet blast of that reality that we're seeing here uh, in, in the first part of the Bible. And so in the end, uh, and I'll close with this, 1 Samuel 1, uh, Hannah's story is a story about love triumphing over awful life decisions, triumphing over barrenness, spiritual and physical, triumphing over conditionalized spirituality, triumphing over contract-making views of God, and triumphing over outright sin. Love triumphs. It's the most powerful force in the universe. God is love, the Bible says. And the gospel in all of that, all of this today, but that last statement I just said, is that God is a lot like this to you and to me. His love is always bigger. It's always bigger. It's always faithful. It's never going away. It will always be there. It will always endure. All up until the day we look at, look at him in, in his face, he wipes tears from our eyes, and he'll end our weeping, and he'll be enough. What he did for us, you guys, is sufficient. His grace is sufficient, the Bible says. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you for the deep theological New Testament truths we actually see here uh, buried, embedded 
in the Old Testament, as I think Augustine said uh, famously uh, many, many years ago, uh, that the New Testament is hidden in the Old. And um, we thank you for that. We uh, thank you that this is a book about you, um, that it's a book about sin, it's a book about awful, awful life choices of which we all play a part and how you draw near unconditionally in love in spite of that. And yet, twisting the diamond, there's so much of you here. Um, Forgive us for our wrong views of you, um, for thinking too highly of ourselves, um, for wanting to make a deal with you rather than receive a gift from you. Um, Whether we're a non-Christian in the room or a Christian, that's a word for us. We need to hear this. Um, I need to hear it. Help us to understand grace and to understand the gospel in a more uh, pervasive way, in a way that's true and good and beautiful, unqualified and unchanging. Uh, But Jesus, thank you for your love for us, that it's bigger than our love for you. Um, And we pray just for the rest of our morning and as you help us to close this service with joy and thankfulness and peace in our heart and uh, and send us on our way, God, uh, glad in you. In Christ we pray. Amen.